Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pekulski. As always, this podcast is evolving, and we're always looking to bring you the greatest amount of value possible to ultimately allow you to live your greatest life in a body of love. And as the audience continues to evolve, as my desires continue to evolve, what I really think this podcast represents is, is this bridge between muscle and performance and longevity. And, and longevity can mean as much as health. It can mean vitality. It can mean feeling amazing. It can mean connecting deeply with yourself, whatever ultimately it means to you to live truly a life that you love. And I think a lot of people maybe go back and forth between, hey, do I really love my life? And to start having ways and resources to analyze, um, hey, do I love my life? And what aspects of my life don't I love? And, and which aspects can I improve? I hope you all take an empowered mindset to realize literally anything going on in your life you can change. You can change your perception. You can change your actions. You can change your habits. You can change your beliefs. So much you can change. One of the things that I've started doing recently is really starting to look at beliefs through the lens of these changeable systems that either serve us or they don't. And so if you have some maybe challenges you're experiencing in your life, perhaps it's time to start questioning your beliefs. Start questioning what you've always believed to be true, because oftentimes this is where our pain exists, right? This is where our pain comes from, is this rigidities that we build into our life. Like, oh, this is the way I'm supposed to be, or this is the way people are supposed to treat me, or this is the way the, the government's supposed to be, or this is the way the world is going to be. And the more rigid we are to those beliefs, oftentimes we cause ourselves a lot of pain. Now, some of those things are, are worthwhile beliefs that are ultimately very important to uphold. And so it's not necessary to always change your beliefs, but sometimes it's good to question them. And question them requires a high degree of awareness, a high degree, degree of self-awareness, becoming aware of what you're thinking minutes, 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 what you're doing minutes, minutes, minutes. And ultimately, to become the best version of yourself, it has to be a life worth living that's analyzed, right? So a, a, a life worth living is one that's constantly reflected upon and analyzed from a perspective of how am I showing up in the areas of my life that matter to me most? And so I thought I'd sh share that little mental framing for you first that I've been including with all of my coaches, uh, all my clients. Just start identifying the areas or avatars in your life that are important to you. So it may be family, it may be fitness, it may be finances, it may be uh, community and leadership and all these th different potential sub areas that you can uh, say, hey, how am I doing in this area? And then reflect on it day to day. Don't reflect on it every month or every quarter, reflect on it every day. How do I show up today? as a dad? How did I show up today as, a, as an athlete? How did I show up today as a partner? How did I show up today in my business? And if you can't be honest with yourself, then you certainly won't progress. So I thought I'd start this today's podcast with a little conversation about that because today's podcast actually brings me back many, many years to a guy who was a longtime mentor of mine. And um, many of you guys will know once you hear the podcast, we talk a lot about the gentleman, Charles Poliquin, who is a mentor to both myself and today's guest, John Connor joins me today from the Irish Strength Institute. John is a world-renowned strength coach known for training the likes of Conor McGregor and many, many more UFC uh, amazing athletes, professional boxers, Olympians. Uh, John is truly a wealth of information who shares his strategies that he learned from Charles that we both ultimately learned from Charles. And now how he approaches it, that's a little bit differently now. And then how he's evolved to being kind of the go-to guy in the world. He actually got his PhD in weight cuts. So how to cut weight for a UFC show, how to cut weight for a boxing match, different than bodybuilding in many ways or physique shows in many ways. But John is an absolute 
wealth of information. And he's, I love the fact that he's able to bridge theory and application, right? There's so many people who live in the world of theory and they don't really get where the rubber meets the road. And there's people who live in the area of practice and they don't really get the, the, the science and the theory. So what we try to do with this podcast is to bridge those things. So John's got a master's in exercise and nutritional sciences. And I said, he's just finished his PhD literally within weeks of recording this podcast on ultimately how to optimize weight cuts in the most healthy and most effective way possible. John has been working with Owen Lacey, uh, who is a world-renowned strength and conditioning coach as well. He's evolved into so many more things than that, functional medicine and nutrition and beyond. Um, John is a performance coach who owns a performance center in Dublin, Ireland. Um, he's one of the co-directors and founders there. Um, and he's been working in this industry for a very, very long time, you know, in, on the realm of 20 years, similar to myself, a little bit longer. Uh, you know, I've been working a little longer than 20 years, I think. But I think we're we're both doing this a long time. And it's it's really fun to share stories, to share uh, anecdotes with someone as brilliant as John. So I hope you will garner a tremendous amount of information as we discuss such topics as programming and, and, the, and the actual program that everyone should be implementing first, if not at least a couple times a year. And I love John's approach. Actually, it's, it's very similar to mine, just kind of done in a different way. Everyone who starts in my ecosystem starts with a program for what John and I will tell you about. And uh, at the end of the podcast, we get into a lot of the details about how to really optimize for weight and some supplements that, that he suggests for his athletes going into the show. So um, going into, I should say, a, um, a fight. So today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Heroic. Uh, Brian Johnson has done it again with his third amazing success. All these evolutions of what started as Philosopher's Notes uh, back way back in, gosh, 2007, I was consuming Philosopher's Notes. They evolved into Optimize.me. Now it's the Heroic.us. And the mission behind Heroic is to ultimately allow you to be the hero of your own story by providing you with the resources tools, and ultimately access to the world's brightest people. And it's an incredible resource that I personally use at least a couple times a week. One of the greatest gifts that I receive from the Heroic app is that, yes, they've got a process where we can reflect on ourselves, similar to, as I said earlier, how we can ultimately reflect on being the best version of ourselves in very specific areas. But he's also got an incredible resource of the best books ever written, literally in the history of humanity, I think, and his amazing six-page um, summaries and 10-minute videos. So if you want to read a book like, say, The Tao Te Ching, you're like, oh, I've never read that. I'm not sure if I'm going to like it. It's a big investment to read any book uh, as far as time. Maybe you can just go through the summary of this book and see, hey, is there some big ideas here that would be very useful for me at this point in my life? So rather than just reading one book that takes you 8 to 15 hours, we're now condensing time. So Brian has done an incredible job of curating not only the best information, but an incredible community, truly incredible community of amazing people. And if you're someone who aspires to be the best version of yourself, listen to this podcast, I'm sure you'll fit in right over at Heroic. Um, some of my favorite books of all time, uh, from Angela Duckworth's Grit to Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle is the Way and Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, and gosh, so many more, everything from business to health and fitness and, and mindset and happiness. It's just an incredible array of information. So sorry about uh, such a long intro, but you can head over to heroic.us slash mi. So that's heroic.us slash mi, and you guys will get hooked up with some incredible offers over there. Uh, Brian's hooking us up, our, our listeners up with an exclusive offer. So enjoy the show, and I hope you guys all take advantage of this incredible opportunity. 
I know you've got some unique, you know, kind of applications of your own ways that you, you take all this information that you've accumulated over the years and and apply it to, you know, everywhere from here from gen pop to high performers. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to start off with a little bit about your background, a little bit about who you work with. I know you yeah. work with some people who are super high profile. You can choose to drop their names or not. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, I will, I will. <laughs> no, so um, I'm in the industry over 20 years. So the gym I worked in, which would have been, what, 2001, probably the busiest personal trainer there was a Czech practitioner. So I um, kind of started working for the, the trainer in my gym at the time. And then as a result of that, I kind of started down the uh, Czech practitioner route. So I would have done the level one, level two, golf biomechanic, his HLC course. And as part of that, I learned about Charles Polican mm. through the Czech program design. So in 2004, I would have gone over and interned with Charles for a week. And this was around the time Charles was launching the PICP. So, um, I decided, I decided to host him. So with uh, my current business partner, Owen Lacey. So that's kind of how me and Owen got into business together was we started hosting Charles's seminars. So we brought Charles over to, uh, Clontarf Castle, uh, in Dublin in November 2004. And then the following summer, I went and spent the entire summer there where I was working under Charles and, and one of my main mentors to this day, Andre Benoit. And then from there, it was like we, uh, myself and Owen basically flew around uh, the world assistant Charles in the courses. And Charles being Charles, we ended up just teaching the courses as a consequence. He'd be like, okay, it's after lunch. I'm going for a nap. You guys teach whatever. <laughs> and then we, and as a result of being on so many of them, I think Andre came back on the fold down about 2007, 2008. And then me, Andre and Owen started kind of uh, taking the information and kind of changing the levels and putting it more into, I don't know, a structured format. So that kind of freed Charles up to, to, to teach other courses. And it would have been around this time, say 2009, we would have then connected with uh, Straight Blast Gym, SBG and John Kavanagh and started training fighters. So part of that crew was Conor McGregor. So we would have started at that time because the lads uh, wouldn't have known much about strength and conditioning. It was a completely different world then, wasn't it, John? It was like 20 years ago. It doesn't sound like that long, man, but nobody knew shit about training in, 20, in, 20, in 2001. Yeah, oh, oh my yeah. God. But it, it, it's amazing how, how much it's changed. And, and that was the thing. It was like back then it was like, so I'm, I'm in Ireland, I'm still in Ireland, and I would go to the States for, for a weekend course just to do it like a weekend course in, uh, I was in like Fort Lauderdale, St. Louis, New York, San Diego. I would, I would fly all that way. And like, it's amazing nowadays. People won't go anywhere, you know, for courses. And, and that was part of what was attractive about the industry was getting to travel and meet people and yep. just see different places and, you know, uh, see the world as part of learning. But, uh, yeah, so and that would have been 2009. So one, one question that came up there, man, I know Charles and, and Paul Check weren't always on the best of terms. I'm curious how Charles came up in Paul Check's course. Was this like pre their little, little, little scuffles or like? Yeah, so that, it, it's just, it, it was part of Paul Checks on his level one course, his program design course. 
hmm. was basically most of its modern trends and strength training. Charles's book, a lot of the huh. same information. And Paul, it like I, I actually only recently threw out the VHS tapes. That shows you how <laughs> how old they were. Um, yeah, so they were. Yeah, and he just kept talking about Charles Lawson, and I think that was recorded in '97. So maybe even earlier it was recorded. Yeah, so that they, I guess they were on speaking terms then. Like, got back in with everyone and then fell out with it, you know, so. Yeah, I think he was just outspoken, man. Like, you know, he was so opinionated and so outspoken. And I first met him in 2007, same around time, you sound like you did. And and I was, uh, no, sorry, not 2007, 1997. I was 16 years old and I saw him speak. Yeah, I saw him speak and I was like, okay, I guess I just start learning from this guy. And he was like the only guy, like, He's the only guy I wanted to learn from when I was like 16. Yeah. And, and that would have been like the, was a muscle media. That yep. was what, yep. what I was publishing in then. Yeah. Yep. So, and that yeah. was the early, early days of the internet. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. I didn't even know what the internet was, to be honest, in the early days. Like I learned from him and then I went to see him at the Swiss symposium, which I think was 1998. Yeah. Um, which is like the first ever one. Maybe it was somewhere in that range, 98, 99. And that was just like, you know, explode. My mind just exploded with like all these amazing geniuses that were there. I mean, I don't. Were you at the the Swiss, the first one ever? I think it was ninety eight. No, no, I would have. No, I wouldn't have been at, around then. And so, like everyone who's still everyone who's still teaching at Swiss was there then, but it's just like you know, twenty five years ago or twenty two years ago. So yeah. it was a it was a heck of a heck of an event for especially for a sixteen year old kid. Yeah, and especially then it was so hard to come by useful information. It was very watered down. Well, there was a lot of science, right? There was a lot of like a lot of anecdote, a lot of, you know, uh, bro science, but there's not a lot of, a lot of science because we didn't have the measuring technology. Like that's why Charles is such a pioneer because he was one of the first guys to like read all the, the Romanian stuff, read all the Russian stuff, all the German stuff, put it all together and be like, hey, here's what people have been doing in the Olympics for the last 30 years. That's yeah. really why he was able to carve the name he did with his amazing photographic memory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, And again, it was, I have, like even today, like most of my program design is still based off what he taught me. Like, of course, you're tweaking it and updating it, but the the broad strokes are still very much Charles Pollock based. So I find that interesting, man. Like I've obviously evolved my thinking, but I think it's contextual, right? I think it's like who you, who you train, right? If you're training an athlete, it's different than a bodybuilder. It's different than a strong, strong man. It's different than a gen pop. And so I'm curious what principles of Charles that, that you still hang on to now that are, you know, kind of still uh, foundational in your programming. So pretty much, if you, no matter who you are, when you walk in the door, you do a structural balance program. Totally. So you're doing yep. the variation of split squat you can handle, the variation of step up you can handle. We do a lot of leg curl variations, a lot of posterior chain stuff, and it's all. And then the kind of sequence, he would have taught me how to progress them from wherever they are to trying to get everyone to squat and front squat. Heels flat on the ground with you know, full range of motion for the squat like that. And then the upper body progressions of a lot more unilateral stuff, up, like for pressing, which we like for dumbbell work. And then uh, a lot more single arm work for rows and then getting everyone to try and chin. And then if they can't chin, where's the weak spot in that chin, building that with free weights and then eventually getting them to chin, whether they're male or female. Um, and, and that's across the board, whether you're, you know, 55-year-old woman or a 19-year-old MMA athlete. Yeah, that's funny because like 
I actually never took any of Charles's programming course. Obviously, I've read some of his books, but I think everyone who evolves through athletics realized that at any age, structural balance, it, it has to be the foundation from which we start. And he, from from I'm sure both of our experiences, had one of the the most the greatest depth of thought when it when it came to uh, actually balancing the body because everyone else is like yeah I need structural balance you know it in theory but he's like hey here's how to do it and I think that's why his his programming has stuck for so long it's like here here's how to like analyze where you are and then here's how to progress it to these these basic metrics which I love and again as you said it's like it's always testing retesting so it's you know you're you're like everyone should be able to squat everyone not everyone can squat and then as I said it's like doing your 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 split squats, your step up, seeing where the weaknesses are and, and building towards that. Like, so, as I said, like, so Charles would have taught me like the, the what would you say, the, the kind of science and structure of it all. But like Andre Benoit would have kind of shown me the art of it. Watching Andre coach, he's one of the best coaches I've ever seen coach. He's just very, he just has a, a, a great intuition about how to train people. And like, so I would have done a lot of uh, soft tissue work as well over the years. So I would have, Doing sports massage, active release technique, and Andre just through his knowledge of the body was able to kind of do all that without you know taking a formal course in that, and he was able to really use that in the gym, um, seeing people move and then how you're going to move them, take them offside, do a bit of a, a release on them, bring them back in, see how their technique improves, and then constantly building them up from there, which was always great to see. And one of the articles, or I think it was a video I saw on you, you were talking about like. Exactly what you just said, like whether you're you're a lady, whether you're an athlete, whether you're, you're you know, anyone, you got to start with the same basic stuff. And I think that's a really good lesson for people to take away because there's so many people in my world who come in and go, I want to bench press, I want to squat, I want to do all these things, <laughs> but you can't, you can't do all the basic foundational stuff. And the, so they're trying to hit the gas pedal before they know how to use the steering wheel, right? That's the, that's the best analogy is like, can't use the gas pedal, man, until you learn how to use the steering wheel, right? So learning the steering wheel is like, the joint control, the joint awareness, you know, balancing left to right. We just have no idea how to do that. But but even it's always like, what's the what is their goal? Like, so in your world, is it more bodybuilders you're you're right. still dealing with? Well, yeah, no, no actually, to be honest, it, it's obviously evolved into like people just want to look, feel, and perform at their best, right? So it's not just guys who want to get huge. A- aesthetics is what I mean. Like, I know it's not yeah, yeah. pure. Sorry, when I say bodybuilding, I don't mean getting on stage, but it's like. Mm. Structural balance, you can still build muscle. You can still build strength. You can still build straight uh, speed. So people don't, re- you don't need to be doing sprints and power cleans to do that. It just depends on where the person is and taking them from where they are. Like, as I said, it's like, now that 55 year old woman might start further back in the progression than your athlete, or they could start at the same spot and the athlete just progresses through it faster. But the, yep. the, the thinking is still the same. The process is still the same. How often do you reassess structural balance, like on a yearly basis? You know, is it the type of thing where you just kind of go by feel now? You're like this guy needs a reassessment or, or, or a reprogram, or is it is it kind of scheduled? Well, a, a big thing I've kind of got into through my studies because again, it's trying to quantify stuff more. Is I use a lot of force plate stuff because it kind of takes my eye out of it. So yeah, you know, so we 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 kind of go back to that, but it's. And and this is something Andre would have taught me was a lot of times for performance, you only need to be balanced enough. You create enough balance and then you kind of to get them closer to the sport or performance, they will come slightly out of balance. And then it's, it, you know, it's you back off and go again. Now, because of an athlete, you, you might push it closer to the edge versus general population. 
Um, so like for an example, it's like a general population might be, you might do three cycles of structural balance, like which could be four to six weeks each. Then you go to bilateral work, come back to structural balance, bilateral work, come back to structural balance, where with an athlete, you might do that two or three months of structural balance and six months of bilateral work, come back. You know, it just depends on the individual. And my problem is, is with the guys I train, I don't really have an off season. I just have, you're in camp, you're not in camp. So that's another thing with a lot of the MMA guys that I train and fighters in general, I tend not to deadlift with them at all because I think it's just too draining on them. And especially Mm. with MMA, there's so much grappling that their lower back tends to be beaten up enough as it is. And they're beaten up enough that back squats are very rarely done. If I'm squatting, I'm trying to front squat. So they spend a lot of time in structural balance because they're so beaten up. And there can be discrepancies between sides. I don't know if that's making sense. Totally. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely, man. That's great. Yeah, so much we can talk about when it comes to programming. So right now you're working with predominantly MMA MMA fighters? Uh, The the athletes I work with are predominantly MMA um, and a few boxers as well. But again, it's it would be like a 60-40 split of general population and then uh, fires. So how do you integrate, you know, kind of autonomic regulation? Is there any type of um, tracking of, you know, uh, total load, total volume relative to the recoverability? Like, how do you monitor? How do you, how do you insert the programming conversation into that? Yeah, so there's kind of practicality with, you know, yeah. uh, optimal. So for a lot of these guys, we will use uh, HRV apps and then performance. A lot of these guys, they don't have, you know, the access or the money to kind of do the really high end stuff you, you want to be training. But as well as that, the, the force plate is a good way of tracking overtraining as well, especially if someone has had any type of lower body injury. So the discrepancy tends to increase the more overtrained they are. So there'll always be, You'll never be 50-50 between sides, like 50% through your right leg, 50% through your left leg. There'll always be a bit of a shift, but the greater the discrepancy becomes. So you're looking at the, the force newtons through the plate. Yep. So usually if it's like 10% is usually anything less than 10%, you're like, okay, we're all balanced enough. Yep. And as it starts to creep above 10%, you're like, okay, we might back off. So if I have someone fighting, we might... As part of their warm up in a training session, they'll do jumps. And if we see the jumps are starting to start to veer off what we want, then we might back off. And a lot of times it's so we're trying a heavyweight box at the time uh, at the moment, Thomas Carthy. Last week he came in and we were supposed to do a front squat session. His numbers were off. So we ended up just doing an FST session. So a fascia stretch. So that's all we did. And then that was Wednesday. Then on the Friday he sparred and he said it was his best sparring off the camp. So I think, especially for athletes, you have to train them hard enough that you do slightly overtrain them. But once you measure when to back off, you back off, super compensate, and then you're better. So it's trying to time that. And, and, and rather than just going, listen, just keep going. That's one of the worst things you can do. I wonder if you could walk us through your thought process around, like, someone walks in the gym, you want to test them on the first plate, you see a little imbalance. How do you make a decision on, on what direction to go? Like, you decide on FST. Was that based on tissue quality? Was that based on the autonomic, you know, HRV? Was that based on, you know, previous experience of, of what this person has responded well to? How do you make that decision? A, a bit of everything there. So it was like, you're, we're, we're doing 
We're warming up with front squats. He's saying his hips are sore. He said he's feeling pain in the bottom position. So then I'm like, right. So he has a fight on the 26. So this is real. You got to be careful territory. As he said, he's pain in his hips. He's warming up. And sometimes, you know yourself, you walk in, you have pain in your hips. You do a couple of warm-up sets. You're good to go. Fine. Yeah. So as I said, it's like, he's giving me that feedback. We're doing, we're progressing through load on the front squat. I always like to do uh, split squats, front foot elevate with him as part of the warm-up, just stretching out his hip, putting him on the force plates. We'll do some jumps as he's getting more warmed up and it's not freeing up. So then I'm like, right, we're just going to stretch and do some ART. And then, as I said, I told him to take Thursday off, took Thursday off, went and sparred on Friday. So I, I, as I said, there's a little bit of the science and the, the, the force plates, his feedback, and then experience. Knowing what's, what, like, I think people try and overcomplicate it. It's just like, sometimes I think you can be tired, but as soon as you start warming up, you're ready to go. And I always kind of use the warm up as, as part of the assessment tool. If you're not improving, let's shut it down and we'll do something else. And it's easy for me as well because I have these different tools. Like I've done ART, I've done fascial stretch therapy. So it's not just, all right, see you, go home. At least they can mm-hmm. still get a benefit of being there with me. Um, why the emphasis on unilateral work? I think that's not that's something that's kind of um, not always discussed or not always understood. So I'd love it if you could just discuss why you feel like that's, it sounds like that's, that's um you know, Big part the majority of, of your stuff. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it's to do with the lower back. So if I, if I'm loading you through squats or deadlifts and you're going one side, there's a huge amount of like, how does the, the lower back hurt itself? Rotation yep. and twisting or yep. sorry, flexion and, and rotation. If you're squatting and deadlifting and you're going one side more than another because of maybe flexibility deficit or strength deficit, then you're going to end up chewing up your lower back and eventually you can't train at all. And as I said, I think it's true working a lot with MMA guys because of the grappling aspects, a lot of their backs hanging on by a tread as it is. Mm. So there's no extra benefit for me, you know, loading them with squats and deadlifts when there's probably only so many reps in that back that it's better to be like in a split squat position with an upright posture. I'm able to train their legs. And then as well as that, they especially say, now it's more prevalent than boxing where you've, you're, you lead with one leg. So you create deficits through that. So it's cr- trying to correct the imbalances between that left and right as well. So what is the, is that enough uh, intervention for people who have, you said a back hanging on them by a thread? Is, is, is simply training your lateral going to be enough to start to, to counterbalance it? Or is there additional things that are like your go-to levers for helping people with back injuries? Well, I have a good network of people that I refer out to as well. So I've uh, orthopedic surgeons that I've no problem with. And I've orthopedic surgeons that deal with rugby players It's all, and they deal with professional teams. So it's about return to sport. So they're, and they're quite honest about, nah, I think we can train through this or we can rehab through this. And so I'll have an orthopedic surgeon we can refer to. I have physios I can get advice from. And again, soft tissue people as well. And it's kind of conversations between everyone from where we progress. So as far as training though, like assuming somebody still is good enough to, or they have, they have a fight coming up or they have, they have something coming up, they're still good enough to train, but they, you know, the back's a little bit tight. It, what is the typical like thought processes for, I know it's a very hard question to answer because it's, there's so many different potential uh, challenges. But. Yeah. So like if it's a program design, so say you're doing lower body, then the program becomes we have to maintain a neutral spine as much as possible. 
and save deflection for your MMA training. So if they come to me, it's split squats, step ups, leg curls, and then I'll remove any type of flexion work. Mm. Now you might say there could be a certain level of detraining. Um, I'm, I, I, can't, I really like the kind of hip bridge kind of progressions. And so I'll put them on the floor and do that. So it's the least amount of pressure on their lower back. Uh, where I, I do normally like a lot of like, say, a 45 degree back extension, a horizontal back extension, reverse hypers. But if I feel that the lower back doesn't have the reps in them, I'll back off and do the hip bridges because there's still a lot to be gained from that. But keep the like the ri- the risk is very low. The benefit is a lot higher. You know, or sorry, the benefit is still there with risk being a lot lower with that exercise. Makes a lot of sense. Any specific variations of the of the the hip extensions? Because like what comes to mind as an athlete, are you saying that you know that's pretty sagittal, right? If we're doing those forty five degree back extensions, do you do yeah. any like rotational stuff? Do you do any single leg stuff? There's lots of very. I yeah, I do kind of, uh, what would you say, uh, isometric anti-rotation stuff. So a lot mm. of like wood chops without the twist, you know, we're trying to load it and we're having pauses and holding it. There's a few like Swiss ball stuff we'll do, you know, a lot of more side plank stuff as well. Like a lot of the, a lot of the ab stuff I'll include at the end of their workout. And um, again, if, if their back is sore, kind of do that Stu McGill sort of, what would you say, horizontal back extension hold. Now, I think he is a down as two minutes. I, I try and get them to do four minutes. Yeah, you might get them to do something like that at the end of a workout as well, just to make sure, you know, you're working those areas, but we're not, you know, draining them with, with too much flexion. How many, how much uh, consideration are, are you having between like integration of strength based movements and dynamic based movements for athletes? My thought on that is I don't need to do it because they're doing enough of it in their sport. Unless the coach says specifically they're slow or they need to do more of it. Because if you're punching, kicking, doing double legs, there's enough movement there. Um, the only thing I might add in on top of it is I like on a Monday morning to do a, a acceleration training. So they'll do a long warm up, uh, like 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And then they do like zero to 10 meters, five times like sprints, two minutes rest zero to 20, five times, two minutes rest, and then seeing what the speed are. Uh, now, I used to use um, timing gates for this. And if there was any type of drop off, we would just stop the session and then zero to 30, two minutes rest, five times. And that would be it if I was to add anything to it. So just, just for clarity, are, are they doing zero to 10 resting two minutes each time or zero to 10 I got it. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of like five times in a row, zero to 10 with the two minutes in between. Now I might within the gym, I really like contrast training uh, just before a fight. So a heavy lift followed by a faster lift. So it could be medicine ball stuff, could be jump. If it's a lower body session, could be jumps. And then depending on their athletic ability, because we're still trying to control load, we might do jumps onto a box rather than over a box or over a hurdle or drop jumps or something like that. So, and so what's the logic behind that, John? So, the, uh, so the audience understands like what's the, what's the value of integrating strength and dynamic movements or strength and something that's a little bit faster. So, so we use it. The heavy lift is is used as a way of like firing up the nervous system, and then you're you're basically following it with an explosive lift. So it's again, this is something we would I would have learned from um, Charles and Andre. And they would have used it for years with their with their Olympic athletes. So just as a way of like heavy 
load up the system and then the nervous system is fired up and you follow it by a, a fast lift. Yeah. So one of the things that I've experienced with myself personally and then other clients is there's definitely um, some degree, at least for me, anecdotally, is there's some degree of loss of, of acceleration when I train with too much strength training. Like if, I, if I'm doing very much like grounded strength training, I actually lose accelerations and I lose the dynamic nature of my body. Right. Yeah. So I was a guy who trained bodybuilding for 20 years. I was very sagittal. You know, I was very like, if you, I can go one direction as fast as anybody, but if I have to change directions, I'm fucked. So right. I'd, always, I'd always try to enter, or recently, probably in the last five years, really try to have the, these multiple types of contractions integrated into the workouts where it's like, hey, I want this thing to get strong and excite the nervous system, but I also don't want to lose the dynamic nature of my body. So I try to have some things built in where I'm like having to change directions, having to accelerate, having to do, you know, some jumps, some plyos. And my body just feels so different. So I've gone from, you know, looking, you know, feeling like the Tin Man sometimes, feeling like a, like a rigid strong man, you know, walking, walking around yeah. like Tin Man to a guy who's still very strong and still can maintain a, a, a much more dynamic nature of my movement simply by integrating something that you're saying. Yeah, no, but definitely with, say, people that maybe aren't doing a sport, like I really like, if you look, there's, I think you can just Google it and the, the force velocity curve and where certain lifts fall on the force velocity curve. Right. So basically, your highest force, lowest velocity would be like a, a one RM squat. Yep. And then your highest velocity, lowest force would be your sprint. And then mm -hmm. there's loads of stuff in between on that point. So, uh, and exactly what you said there, I would have found that with my own training because I, I, all I did was lift and I stopped playing sports. That when I went back playing sports, I'm like, fuck, I'm slow. And I even, I know they do a lot of stuff on the intent once your intent is there, but I still think if you want to be fast, you have to train fast. You have yeah, to do I think both. Thing. So I think I'm, I maintained a good amount of speed, but just not the ability to change directions, right? Oh, like, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, yeah. I, but again, it's, I think you adapt to what you do as well. Totally. So, so in, in your programming, are you considering like obviously sagittal movements, frontal movements, you know, vertical, horizontal type movements, or is it predominantly just like, let's just get strong in these joint positions? In the, in the gym, it, it would be more sagittal based, but I always, like I do a session where I put my fighters, they all come together regardless of weight class. And we do a, a, like a modified strongman session. So there would be a lot more dynamic, rotational, all different things. Like, as you know, like single arm, farmer's walk, carries, a lot of sandbag stuff, a lot of, a lot more medicine balls, a lot more carries. And we would do a lot of uh, sprints with change of direction as a way of kind of keeping that athleticism there as well. But as I said, like a lot, for a lot of those guys within their sport, they're doing crazy athleticism. So, but again, and within that session, depending on, uh, we do a few of those sessions for people in our gym as well. So that kind of, a and it, the reason I like it as well is like, I think of modified strongman training as like safe CrossFit, where you can get that kind of horrible feeling people like from CrossFit, but keep it a lot safer. Yeah. And I don't mean to disparage you, but you know, yeah. it's kind of, and then it's, it's almost the, the in between of, and there's the F45, which is kind of like rehab CrossFit. It's like all rehab exercises, but probably not in, in you know to the same level crossfit is so the, the modified strongman i find is a a very happy medium for general population as well to right. do and as you said to integrate that athleticism as well rather than just being in the gym moving straight up and down and and, and not doing like 
real movement. But um, we do think now. So I do. I've done. I'm doing jujitsu twelve years now, and then I've done different things of like um, animal flow and movement stuff. So I'll always try now. Recently, at the end of a workout, throw a bit of that stuff in, or to integrate it into the warm up as well, just so people are moving as yep. well. Just trying different things. Yeah. Um, and you know yourself as you get older, you. Your warm ups for yourself and your clients tend to be longer than than they were <laughs> fifteen years ago. So there's yep. a lot more taking your time, a lot more warm up sets. So um, trying to integrate a lot of that movement stuff, in, it, as I said, as part of the warm up as well, and maybe more difficult versions of it at the end to finish people off. And I, I remember a workout. I think I was probably 26. I was training with Steve Kugel. I don't know if you follow bodybuilding. I was training with Steve Kugel. I was in Texas at. Uh, the old Metro, so like not not the original Metroflex, but the one that was in. Um, oh, yeah, Harlem. yeah, yeah. Yeah. We walk in the gym, it was hot, it's 105 degrees or something. And we started with 110 pound dumbbells, like first set on, on presses. <laughs> we're, like, right. we're like, this is just like now, like I couldn't, like picking up the 40s, I'm kind of like, oh, let's see how it feels today. <laughs> like just starting as my first set back then. Yeah, like, you man, start, you do your band work, you do your activation. <laughs> yeah, totally. To be young again, right? <laughs> Um, so what's something that you've, that you've accumulated? I know you've been, you've been such a uh, student, such a, such a, a persistent student for the last 20 years. What's something you've, you've acquired in the last, you know, two to three years or two to five years that is uh, a great addition or a new addition to your thought process or a new addition to your training process? In the last three to five years, I, actually just what we were talking about there is yeah. like longer warm ups, less work sets. So from, as I said, the structure I would use is like if you're A, like A's, which is your primary objective, your B's, and then your C's. So it's a lot of times, I'll still probably do as many sets on the A's. So say, for instance, you're doing six sets of trees on the A's. I'll still do them, but I'll take a lot more warm-up sets to get there. If you're doing chest and back, I'll probably only do it for the A, A1, A2, like a, a dumbbell press with a chin, and then B1, B2, B3 is shoulder work, rehab work, where in the past it would have been, let's rush through the warm-up sets, get on to the, the work sets as quick as we can, and then we'll add in more work sets for B1, B2 for the same body parts, where I've backed off a lot more on that. And as I said, it, it probably like as well using more of the recovery, like cheaper, I wouldn't say cheaper, like apps like the HRV, the Aura Ring. Like again, are they, you know, even like the, the Apple Watch stuff, are they accurate or 100%. No, but they're, you know, I, I use them as part of a tool to assess how that person is feeling. I would probably use that a bit more to be like, okay, today we stretch. And again, as I, I used the example of the boxer earlier, but again, that, it could be an executive coming in. So with things going on in technology world, I have people that work for those companies that literally found up by email today that half the staff, you know, staff have lost their job. And then they're fearful of losing their job. So they come in stressed out of mind. And you're like, you know what? Today we'll just do a stretch session. Or you might go, listen, I tell you what, we're going to warm up on the bike and then we're going to go out and push the prowler. Really just jack up the heart rate, feel like crap, go for a little bit of a cool down, and then we're just going to stretch. So they've only done five minutes of hard work and then they've just, you know, recovered them for the rest of it. So, you know, or people show up, newborn kid, have slept for 45 minutes. You might yeah. be like, okay, we're, we're, we're just going to work on some, on some mobility today. And it's funny you say that, man. Yesterday, I was literally thinking the same thing. I was like, so many people live this life of like existing in their head, this constant rumination. And I was thinking yesterday, the greatest way to get out of your head is to do something hard, right? Because when you're, when you're doing something that's hard in the gym, no matter how long it is, you simply can't be in your head, right? Because there, there comes a point where you're like, 
your lungs are searing and, and, and the muscles are burning and like you literally aren't able to be in your head. And I think that should be like prescribed as medicine. Like, hey, you need to do this, this short amount of exercise for people who are anxious, who are depressed or whatever. And again, I know there's clinical things that are happening that are, that are uh, not going to be solved with exercise. But in some cases, some people would just ruminate in their mind. And like I was doing something yesterday. I was like, and when I, when I went into the session, I was like in my head at a lot going on in my business, a lot going on in my life. And, uh, you know, I went in, I was like, all right, I'm just going to, I'm just going to lean in on this and I'm just going to go and go and go and go. No, no time duration. Just like, I'm going to go until I can't go anymore. And it, it wasn't long. It was super intense. By the time I was done that, I was like, all my worries had fallen away. I had this huge rush of endorphins. You know, I was laying on the ground and I was like, all right, I'm good now. Let's start the workout. And I think just, just offering that, that lever to, to clients to just like, hey man, when things are hard, take, take 10 minutes and like go do something that, that literally doesn't allow you to be in your head for a little bit to, to allow you to start to feel yeah. better. I think as well as like, just say, for instance, for intense, as you said, that sort of stuff where it's like, maybe if you're doing strength training, there's too long a rest in between where if you're doing like maybe joint sets and bodybuilding, things have to go away. If you're doing like prowler runs with very little rest in between, as you said, you, you forget about everything else. And I think like you said it there, it's like, it is meditation. Meditation is you're on the task at hand. The rest of the world goes away. Now, some people can do that with sitting down, breathing, chilling out. I can't. Mm. <laughs> now, maybe that's a weakness, but like I use uh, jujitsu a lot for that. Like when someone's trying to choke you unconscious, you're not really <laughs> thinking about, oh, I've got to pay this bill. Or <laughs> totally. You are there. You're, you know, you're, nothing else matters. I think that's a big part of why certain sports take off and, and they did develop this huge following is like the, the state they induce allows you to feel some sense of presence, right? It's like you think about like mountain biking or anything that induces a sense of flow. Like people are like, you got to be present or you're going to die, right? Or you're yeah. present or someone's going to choke you out. Like, yeah. I think that's why people enjoy these sports, even boxing, right? Someone's coming to try to hurt, take your head off. Like you better be present in this moment and like, be calm, chill out. Don't bring your, your stress in. Otherwise you're going to get killed. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. I think it's why these certain sports really take off. I mean, I think it's why certain athletes are, are able to excel. It's, it's almost their escape. I know for me, that's, that was to- like completely, I was addicted to exercise when I was competing. I was like, if yeah. I didn't train, I was a, I was a terrible person. We, I was like, for, for the level you, you were at, you kind of have to be addicted. You have yeah. to be obsessed. You, you, yeah. Like, I don't know if I've ever gone like sports wise to that level where everything is shut out. And I think that, I think that's part of why we admire high level people is their ability to just like, now there's a certain level of selfishness involved, but it's like, you know, our selfishness slash focus that you admire in these people that it's just like everything else gets turned off. Nothing else matters, but this. It's funny. Cause I often talk about how the, that it has to be that way. There's no other way to do it. And it's such a blessing. And it's also such a curse at the same time. Cause there's, there's people, there's opportunities, there's things you're leaving behind. You're just like, I don't care. I'm going there. And I think that's such a, you're like, as you say, it's such a, a highly valued thing. It's like, it's not a very common thing for someone to be able to, because especially in the world we live in, I'm sure, I don't know if you experience this with athletes. I'm curious, like there's so many things pulling your attention right now. We got, we got instant gratification everywhere. There, there's no, like, there's not a lot of athletes who will kind of go underground for a while, train for a couple of years, come back and just be exceptional. Right. Everyone's getting, I'm on yeah. social media doing this. I'm getting pulled in that direction. I got to fly here. I got to do that. So the training almost becomes this secondary to like self-promotion, right? And I think that's been a big, um, fa- a big faltering, a, a floundering of professional, well, certainly bodybuilding. I can't speak for other sports, but it seems yeah. like, yeah, everyone just wants to have abs now instead of being like, hey man, how do I lay a foundation for long-term progress and actually be a great athlete first? 
as you said, like some, I've dealt with several world champions and they all have similar but uniquely different approaches. So, but when it's go time, nothing else matters. And they all have that. But how they get there can be very different. Some people are like super relaxed. Uh, so there's a, a, an Irish fighter, Carl Frampton, would be as a, a boxer. So he would have won, he would have unified super bantamweight and won a world title at featherweight. And he was literally like chilled out, listening to music, eating dinner, chatting to people, right until his whole thing was, I'm not fighting until my gloves are on. Nothing else mattered to them. And then uh, I've other people who, it's like when they leave their hotel to go to the arena, they switch on. And then other people, it's like the moment they wake up in the morning, yeah. switch on. And yeah. dealing with like fighters, and again, like, you know, UFC champions, guys who've maybe a 50-50 record in UFC, but they all talk about that ability to be like, and the guys who succeed the most are the people who are like, my best performances are on the night in the cage where other lads who never quite hit that are like, geez, I've, I've beaten people in the gym that are way higher quality than the people I've lost it. You know, so it's, um, it's interesting to see their process as well. But as I said, it's like the re- the world champion guys when they're, they, they're just on, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of why, you know, and that's why we put them on pedestals as such. And this goes for sports, business, people that can just like when they're high performers in any field, you know, when they switch on, that's it. They're on and they're ready to go. So interesting. I don't know that I knew how to turn it off when I was, when I was, you say like some guys are on the day of the, of the fight or like, I don't know that like for 15 years, I ever knew how to turn it off. Like I, I was so thinking of that one thing and, and obviously dismissive or often dismissive of people of, of things other than my goal. And I don't say that to like boast. I say that to like, I wish somebody had been there to tell me, Hey, there's another way. Like you to, to be able to, to, I always say, I talk to my current athletes. I'm like, you want to be able to tap into it, but you also want to be able to step out of it. But, but I think, I think as well as bodybuilding is unique in that compared to other sports, it's a lot more full time. Yeah. You know, it's like even like, so say for instance, with a lot of sports, it's like you perform on the day where in bodybuilding, of course you have to show up for the show, but it's weeks and weeks of preparation that if right. you veer off slightly, like a couple of percentage of body fat is huge. Where in most sports, a couple of percentage of body fat, who cares? Where I think there's yeah. a bit more of a unique mindset involved in body. Yeah. Like the most obsessed people are physique people. Probably. I think of it through the lens, John, of like, I want to be able to go a hundred percent and then back right off. And I think if you're always going and you think you think you're always going hundred percent, you're probably going more like 75%, right? So I, yeah. there was a lot of times where I was like, I was just always gas pedal, gas pedal, gas pedal. And uh, I wish someone just come along and be like, hey, man, you need a couple of days off. And I actually would have listened. I probably wouldn't have listened, but I, yes. I wish, yeah, like I, I wish I would have known more about the value of, of being present in your body and obviously disconnecting from the, the constant pressure of the expectation. Bodybuilding's hard, man, because you wear, you wear your body on, it's, it's your calling card. Everyone's like, if you see you walking down the road, there's always someone who's going to make a comment. So you always have to be on. Like, you can't like, I got into this habit of like Kai Green always wearing hat, always wearing like big, big, big sweaters because I don't want people to talk. I just want to be left alone. I want to be able to disconnect from. Anyways, it's interesting. Even like if you're having food, if you're eating really strict in front of people, they're like, oh, do you ever relax? Or then if you have some, a bad food, they're like, oh, look at you. So Everyone's you can't win either way. So man, you you evolved your coaching in so many different directions, obviously starting with the the, the actual tactical in the gym, 
evolving well beyond that. I'd love to hear uh, a little bit about what you're studying now, what your PhD was in. I know you've, you've done, it's completed now. So I'd love to hear what that looks like. Yeah. So as I said, so in 2009, we started working with the fighters and we did everything for them, the strength and conditioning, the nutrition and the weight cutting. Now at the time, you know, I would have known a lot about strength training, a good bit about nutrition, and I knew nothing about weight cutting. So one of the fighters is a guy called uh, Carl Pendred. Carl has like, he's like a degree in uh, forensic sciences, and now he has a master's in climate change. So a very clued in guy, but he would have done a lot of the early research on it for that group. So the way it works in, in MMA, it's kind of like you develop a culture within a gym of weight cutting, and then it, it kind of, that's what everyone does. So part of my research was like, and a lot of people have shown this, it's that the number one source of information for fighters for weight cutting and nutrition is fellow fighters. It's not nutritionists. It's not doctors, dietitians. It's fellow fighters. So we had seen that. So Carl kind of developed it. And then I started a master's around then in exercise and nutrition sciences. So then I started to to look more into the research on it. And at the time, like 12 years ago, there was, there was nothing really like there was in MMA, there was zero. I think there was absolutely zero back then, but there was, there was some stuff in wrestling, especially like collegiate wrestling, high school wrestlers, a little bit like for dehydration, glycogen depletion stuff. So then myself and Owen kind of took over the weight cutting process for the lads. We were modifying it the whole time and looking into the research on it. And then from 2015, I was like, you know what? I, I, I done a couple of courses that people had given, uh, weight cutting guy in the UK, Martin McDonald had worked with the GB weightlifting team. And then there was a guy who'd worked with the GB boxing team and I kind of done their courses. And again, they were presenting a lot of information, but a lot of it wasn't specific to MMA. And so I was like, right, I actually want to do direct research in this field. So I says, right, I'm going to do a PhD and really dig deep into this. And then once you realize, I'd, these massive questions I wanted answered. And then once you get into that process, you realize, actually, I'm only going to be able to answer a teeny tiny bit of this. Since I started that, there's a lot more research coming out on it. And there would have been stuff like, which was always interesting. Um, we did water loading from 2010, 2011. And I was told that that doesn't work. And then recently research has come out to show, no, it actually does work. You know, so uh, now some stuff. At what level, John? So when you, when you speak of water loading, like at what level is, is it like, se- you know, seven days out loading and then dropping or what is the protocol? The study done by Reed Rail. So if we equate it to a normal kind of weight cut, if you say Friday, you're weighing in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of that week, you take a hundred milliliters per kg of body weight on the Thursday, you drop it to 15 milliliters per kg up to 24 hours before whenever the weigh in is and then complete fluid restriction for 24 hours. That's the water load. It, is that with electrolytes, John, or just, just straight water? Just straight water. Just straight water. And no sodium then, manipulation? No sodium man- manipulation? I think you're manipulating sodium. Um, I think, no, no, no. For the, for the study they did, I think they cut out sodium for two days. But I think with that high level of fluid intake, you're flushing out your sodium. And then the control group was uh, where the, 15, the Thursday, the 15 mils was the same, 24 hours restriction was the same. And it was 40 mils versus 100 mils. And the water load group lost more weight on the scales. I think aldosterone was slightly different, but everything returned to baseline after 24 hours of refueling um, and rehydrating. 
for them. So, uh, yeah, so we've been using that now. We didn't have those exact numbers. And this is where, what would you say, bro science versus the actual science. So we had lads who were 100 kilos drinking 10 liters of water a day and it was working for them. And they were telling 60 kilo athletes the same thing. So the 60 kilo athlete is drinking 10 liters of fluids a day and versus it should only be six, you know. Now, the 100 mils was just pulled out of the air as a starting point. You might find 80 mils or 120 could work worse or better. You don't know, but that's the starting point for the research at the minute. Another group out of Malaysia did it as well, but they did it for, I think it was 10 days of water loading. But I don't think the percentage drop was, was, wasn't was any bigger than the uh, Reed Real group in Australia. So three day, three to four days seems to be optimal for the water load for wake up. Yeah. Um, and your PhD was on something slightly different than just the water load, right? Yeah. So I wanted to replicate that water load study, but the practicality of it, like the expense of it, trying to test hormones is so expensive because I was self-funded. Uh, so I was like, all right, what can I test specifically? Money-wise isn't the most expensive. So I went in and studied uh, hot baths. So um, hot baths are used a lot. And the early research, because the questionnaire didn't include them, it didn't show up. But now questionnaires that te- that um, look into it include it. And the percentage of athletes that use it is really, really high. Um, so we were looking at if there was a difference. Well, we were looking at two things. The overall weight loss from it and was there a difference with uh, salt, specifically Epsom salts or no salt in the bath? And this is the thing is why you can look, you have your biases. And at the start, I thought it was going to be a huge difference between the salt group and the non-salt group. There was no difference at all between them. And the first study, because of ethics, we could only heat the bath to 37.8 degrees Celsius. I think it's about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So then that the feedback we got from that was it's a lot colder than what we normally use. So then we were allowed uh started that weight for the or that temperature for the next study and increase it to tolerance. And then the final study, we just hit that max tolerance that people had reported and kind of just sat at that tolerance. What temperature was that, John? 40 degrees okay. for the last study. So the first study was a consistent 37.8 degrees. The second study started at 37.8, went up to just over 40. And then the final study was a constant 40 degrees. But what we found is between those three studies was that increased temperature does lead to more weight loss from the protocol as well. So that's a good finding. But uh, even though I finished the PhD, we're going to start another study on bats uh, where the, the bat study I did, you did 20 minutes in the bat, 40 minutes wrapped, 20 minutes in the bat, 40 minutes wrapped. Why that? There's, that's what was reported back to us was being used by guys in the field. So when you say wrapped, that means like you're wrapped in like plastic bags. So basically like- they'll, they'll, they'll get out of the bat while still standing. They'll dry off, put a beanie on, put a t-shirt on, put a hoodie on, strip. So through this experience, I've seen too many uh, penises for my liking. They will strip, <laughs> get out of the bath, put on tracks of bottoms, put on socks and get into like a bed with towels over them and, and put a duvet cover over them as well. Um, so only their face is exposed. Now, in our final study, we replaced that with a sauna blanket 
because we were able to keep the, the temperature more consistent. So I think that partly was why the last study had the most weight loss because that was cons- uh, was able to keep it consistent. So how many times did you repeat the 20 minutes in the bath? Twice, for two, two hours total. But a lot of the research on hot baths and especially on hot salt baths are for very long durations. Um, so you're talking like two to five hours. So the next study we want... Two to five hours in the water or in and out like you were doing? No, uh, just consistently in it. Yeah. And now they wouldn't have, for that duration, they wouldn't have gone as high temperature wise. Mm-hmm. So they would have been at the 37.8 or 38 degrees. The next study we want to do is two hours straight through at 38 degrees. Because what we think is you're using the bath to passively sweat. So, you know, and I think once you hit a certain tolerance level over a prolonged period of time, because what happened is, is that the lads that do the first bath, they'd be fine. They did the first wrap, they're fine. In the second bath, they're really starting to feel it and they want to stop. And then they get out and then the second wrap, you know, they're, they're, the, the wrap is more tor- tolerable than the bath, but it's still not comfortable by the end of the, the two hours total. Like, so we think if you, if you put them in the bath, now this is purely speculation on my part. We think if you leave them in the bath for the, at 38 degrees for the two hours, that you'll get a certain sweat rate and be able to maintain that sweat rate for longer than getting them in and out of the bath. Sure. And how much water yeah. approximately are they losing during that time? I mean, that's not very subjective based on body weight. I'm no, sure, no, but- it is. So we'd measure it. We would usually do a 24 hour low glycogen, low residue diet. And they're usually losing two to two and a half percent just from that, included fluid restriction in there. And then the two hours in the bath, they're losing two to two and a half percent in that two hours of body mass. And again, there's variation within that. Within that 24 hour period, we 24 to 26 hour period, we had some people lose 8% body mass. Wow. Uh, some people three and a half, four percent, but the average was about four and a half to five percent. Do why, why bath instead of saunas? Just as a starting point, you mm. know, so could you, um, I know within the fighters, they have some of them prefer the sauna to the bath. Um, but a lot of them find the problem with the sauna is all of you is in there. So you overheat through your head where with the bath, at least your head is out of the bath. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, um, it, it, again, there's, there's nothing to say. I would like to do a study where it's like, you know, two hours in the bath, two hours in the sauna, um, and do a comparison of like, how often do you have to get in and out of sauna versus getting in and out of the bath? Does yeah. that affect over, cause heat tolerance is part of it, um, thermal comfort. So can you tolerate one longer than the other? And I think, uh, <laughs> fighters can be very like, the more extreme, the better. So literally some of them before we kind of like, they would never, like I had, I use a thermometer for everything. Um, for, you know, there'd be t- I'd have two thermometers in the bath the whole time and comparing them like to each other um, to make sure that the bath is at that temperature where guys would just get in and turn on the tap and be like, yeah, whatever scalds me and I don't have to get out of, then that's the temperature I have it at. So, right. you know, and some of them like they'd stand up out of bath and they're like, lobster red you know they're they're just you know like burning themselves almost it's that hot but the problem with that is is that your tolerance 
uh, or your ability to, to, to uh, stay there for a long period completely diminishes if mm. it's too hot. So it's, it's trying to find that like Goldilocks zone of like, you know, how can we get you to sweat at a good rate, but to be able to tolerate it for long enough to, to lose the amount of weight that you need to lose. What percentage do you like to have people within? Like, you know, let's say we're in we're in the last seven days of a of a of a fight. How much? What percentage of body weight do you like to be within striking distance? People who are bad at cutting weight, seven percent. People who are great at cutting weight, twelve percent. But most people, it's nine to ten percent. So if we say you're waning, you're waning Friday morning. The Saturday beforehand is is that percentage. That's fully hydrated, hopefully maintenance calories, and hopefully eating a, a good bit of carbs as well. So if you're dehydrated, um, you know, on a on a keto diet for the last three weeks because you're way off your weight, that 10% is completely different. So we I would use um to to check um Again, they, a lot of them would count calories. So, um, so only very recently I got a, um, a metabolic machine to test like calories. They're or and more, and we, we use that. And we kind of sporadically will use that to test to see. Uh, that's an, a, another study we're going to do is the effect of people who've done multiple weight cuts. Does it affect metabolism? Um, but anyway, the, we, uh, use that as a way of judging calories for them. So we want to be at maintenance calories the week before. And I use an Osmo check machine for the first urine pass or piss of the day to check hydration levels. So they usually say anything under 700 on their scale, but I like them to be under 400 for me. Um, and within that, you know, 10%, I like them to be taking creatine as well. Because if you, if you take creatine out, most people will drop half a kilo to a kilo within that few days. Um, now, again, some people will talk about creatine for the how effective it is, but there's a lot more research coming out on cognitive health with it and preventing it for, for, especially with fighters. So I definitely have all of them take that. Um, and it does give you an extra um, uh, bit coming out. But yeah, so that percentage is based off ticking all those boxes first. And then we know that the weight cut will be easier because you have multiple sources. Yeah. And you, you mentioned, uh, I think briefly, mostly a low glycogen diet during that, that depletion week, or is it like zero um, carbohydrate during that last week? Or? Again, I'll take the Friday as the day you're weighing in. They'll start on the Monday or Tuesday, depending. And then this is why we'll always try and track and be very accurate for that week. So we're able to make adjustments up or down. So you might find someone does starts like low carb, low residue on a Monday, drops like two kilos the first day, but only drops half a kilo for the rest of the week. But then feels like shit where other people might drop a little bit every day. So if they drop a lot and then very little, we might only do it for the Wednesday and Thursday of that week. You know, so We'll go, so it's low carb, low residue. So we basically remove all the fiber from their diet as well. If the person is on that low carb diet for say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Wednesday night, they'll do a sweat session every night. And usually I like to do that uh, with low impact exercise. So 
before that session on the Wednesday evening, they'll, they'll drink 50 grams of carbohydrates. So whether that's a carbohydrate mix, a Powerade, a Lucas said, I don't really care just because if the, I can't remember the, the enzyme, if, it, if you, if you're low carb for too long, the enzyme drops. So then when we refuel, we can't access the glycogen stores. So we might refuel the glycogen stores, but come Saturday night when they're fighting and really that's all that matters. They need to be able to access those glycogen stores. So if you're low carb for too long, carb load, yeah, you might put weight on in the scales, but you can't perform as a result. I was curious yeah. about managing cortisol during that time because obviously, you know, they're, I'm guessing their training load is very, very low during that week. And very low. Yeah. And so obviously these, these, these uh, heat exposures are inducing cortisol. I'm curious if you, if maybe something, something to think about measuring is like measuring, you know, five point cortisol throughout the day and seeing like, where's the cortisol? Cause obviously if it's up. It's one of those things I'd love to do it, but I'm kind of judging it on again, HRV, whatever feedback devices they have. But what I try and do that week, a lot of is fascial stretch therapy as a way of like really chilling them out. And again, it's like, even though we didn't show it, any difference the Epsom salt the feedback we got from the Epsom salt was the baths were always easier with the Epsom salts in it nothing showed up on the blood work it, again it was it was it was pinprick so we were looking at uh, hemoglobin hematocrit uh, potassium sodium but n- nothing was showing up in the blood from what we were testing now we weren't doing aldosterone or uh, cortisol or anything like that so maybe it could have shown up on that but Gen, the feedback was it was always easier with the salt in the bath. So we would have gone a 5% solution. So in a 125 liter bath, small bath, we'd have six kilos of Epsom salts in the bath. A lot. Yeah. And now some studies, and this is what we want to look at next time is, is actual sodium chloride because the osmolality is different. And we think maybe that'll have an effect where there's a greater um, gradient as a result of it. So that might lead to a bigger difference between salt and non-salt. So we're going to do three conditions, fresh water as such, Epsom salts, and then sodium chloride. Is there anything, John, that, that you've heard people doing that they really shouldn't be doing during weight cuts? I'm sure there's a long list of things, but like, I just want to give the audience kind of an idea of, of like, hey, man, you may have heard this from these fighters. Don't do that. Stay away from that. I, I think the biggest mistake is literally just being too fat, you know, and it, it, not not in the, the the process itself. But if you most of the time when guys miss weight, like yes, it's it's they, everyone loves all the fancy stuff of like talking about you know the, the low glycogen diet, the low residue diet, the water loading, the different types of how to conduct this salt bath. But a lot of times you miss weight because you're just too fat, you know what I mean. And the, the biggest mistake people make is. They don't get lean enough uh, the week out from a fight. Or again, like they're lean, but they might be 10% above, but they're dehydrated and there's no glycogen stores. So even though they're at that 10% limit, it's not a true 10%. They could just be too big for that weight class. Um, speaking about like the the reload, or, or let's actually one thing even before the reload, electrolyte balance. Someone someone gets into, you know, three day three or four of this depletion. They've lost, you know, almost 10% of their, their body weight. Do you ever get people who are cramping or having a hard time just like getting through the last time? Is there some way to, you'd have some intervention as far as like, hey, don't want to put a bunch of water back in, but we want to make sure we're, we're, we're balancing electrolytes? 
like I, I personally speaking don't have them cramp a lot and I think part of that is due to where they're starting from they're starting from a good position so that when I flush them out there's enough reserves there that they they don't start cramping and their diets in general tend to be good by the time they get to that point I so I I, I don't have any interventions because yeah it doesn't really happen now I know for what I do versus say what uh, physique people do is very different because yeah. I'm just I just care about the scales so I know there might be similarities in what we do but very different. The, the, the nuances are different so I yeah. I, I, uh, I wouldn't really as I said there's definitely something to do with the salt but it's like flushing the system out that allows them to just piss out more yeah so as far as then the reload like do you have some process you go through is there certain things you're prioritizing like sodium like like uh yeah, so I'm not sure if it, it's a brand over here, Diorolite, which is basically, you know, your 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 electrolytes. And they, I mix a lot of that in. I like them to have coconut water. Now, even though this is the problem with research in general is it can be very black or white. It's significant or not significant. But if you yeah. look at the effect size, that coconut water does have a small positive effect size for rehydration. So I'd always recommend at least one liter of coconut water um post but my two my two priorities at when they're refueling are fluids and carbohydrates it's eight to ten grams of carbs spread throughout the day from the moment they weigh in to when they go to bed at night and we tend to start per kilo it's 10 grams per kilo per kilo per kilo yeah eight to ten grams per kilo again it's one of those things where Try not to rush it at the start. And uh, so, and it's very, it's liquid based early on, very sugary based, and then it becomes more re- re- real food later on. And I always want a mix of it. So I want a mixture of oats, different types of rices, different types of potatoes, rather than just one type of food. I want lots of different uh, carbs. And it's like, you know, like the gels they take, they might have some of that. And it's, you know, so as they're, drinking their their uh uh ref- like rehydration drink so I, I tend to stick to a lot of like i think the cycling have a lot of it where it's like depending on the size of the person and their tolerance it's like 60 grams per hour absorption rate so we kind of stick to that for the first couple of hours and if i'm if if i'm familiar with it, it might be 60 up to 90 grams depending on the person but 60 is usually where i start right uh, and we can push it up to 90 grams for the first maybe couple of hours and then we slow it right back down again and it's real food, spread it out over the day. So no protein with that? Just just straight? Yeah, straight so I would kind of go one one gram of protein for the day. Yeah. So I try and have every time there's a carbohydrate feed, there's some sort of protein coming in as well. Real food, salt, salt it like crazy. Like as much as you want, no measure, just like go? Don't care. Don't care, just go for it. Like a lot of people will shut them. It's your feedback on it tends to be quite good. If if it's too salty to you, it's usually too much. Yeah. If you're not tasting the salt, you probably need a little bit more. And then, as I said, with the diorolite added to their fluids, usually they might have. I think it's you put one of those per two hundred mils. So for every so, whatever you wake up on the Thursday morning and then you weigh in at whatever the difference is there weight-wise, you drink 150% of that in fluids. So if you wake up 74 kilos Thursday morning, you weigh in at 70, it's a drop of four kilos. That's at least six liters 
of fluids you need to consume. So they'd have, so they'd say they'll divide it up into six liters. I'll add maybe two of those diorolites each liter hmm. for for the whole day. Okay, uh, that's super yeah. helpful. Uh, anything you're doing like for the last two or three hours before before a, a fight that like you know getting them the brain turned on, the nervous system turned on as far as nutrition. I I tend to try and repeat what they normally do in camp on sparring days. So so a lot of guys fighters like to feel hungry when they're fighting. Not like oh my god I'm ravenous, but they like yeah. to have a little bit of hunger pangs. Adrenaline. Because a lot of times they they'll wake up in the morning. A lot of them do this is they wake up in the morning, have a tiny breakfast and go and spar. So they always, you know, there's not, they're used to sparring in that state. Yeah. And so you try and create that state. If they're used to sparring in the evening, they might have a big enough breakfast, an okay lunch and like, I don't know, like a, a, a like a, an oat bar or something like that as a snack. And that's about yep. it. So I, 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 on that day, if they've hit, like the day before is when you fuel for the fight. The day of is just don't mess up your system, especially because it's it's high intensity work. I don't want to, it's not like a, a, a marathon or a triathlon where it's like you just have to go, like not to say they're going slow, but you're going at a certain pace and you just stay there where these guys need to sprint, come back, sprint, come back, sprint, come back. That's, you yeah. know, high intensity ease off. But as I said, it's the day before, it's the after weigh-ins is when the real work goes in that, that they need to do it. And one of the big things is, and this is a trick I learned from Charles, is because you've your your weight has drastically changed so much in that one week period. The day of the fight, every hour they set their alarm. Every hour you do like sixty seconds of shadow boxing and like jujitsu movement drills. Yeah, yeah. just it, so for nervous system, that's what I would do. Is just like because I've had people do everything perfect and not do that, and they just they're like, I just feel flat in there. I just yeah. felt off. And I'm like, yeah, because your body doesn't know where it is in space because you, yeah. you've, you've basically shrunk down and just blown up real fast. So your body's like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. So by doing the, the the kind of shadow boxing, the movement drills, and it's only 60 seconds and it's 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 not intense. It's just, and a lot of times they'll have a game plan in their head of what am I going to do? And I'm like, just go through the game plan. So whatever it is, oh, I'm going to shoot for the takedown. I'm going to throw the jab, shoot for the takedown. And I'm like, that's all I need you to do. 60 seconds moving around doing that and then that's it boom sit down chill out for the next hour and they just do that for the whole day yeah that seems to to tune in the nervous system and before the fight I like to do a lot of like ankle and jump work for people that seems to really fire them up so again Andre would have shown me this and it's a lot of like tap drills it's hard to explain but tap drills with the ankles and you do like high frequency low amplitude then uh uh, high amplitude stuff and then jumps and I kind of de- developed it as well from uh, like helping people do jiu-jitsu tournaments because in a jiu-jitsu tournament you could be hanging around for the day and then all of a sudden you're told right you're up in five minutes right so in that instance and I do the same with the fighters in the morning I'll do a big stretch session in the morning especially the fascial stretch because I find that's another way of kind of locking the nervous system back in retraining it after that massive fluctuation in body weight and do all that in the morning so that if they need to rush through a warm-up later on, their body's kind of set, it's ready to go. Love it, man. So so much value. Uh, any any substances, uh, supplements or molecules you like to use pre, pre-fight? pre Like, is there anything that's to go to? 
again, a lot of this is restricted by budget. Like, so I kind of like just go very basic. So like creatine, I recommend that for them all to take it, it because they sweat so much, a, a good magnesium, a, a vitamin D and a probiotic. And that's probably it. Yeah. Anything, anything pre-fight, like right as you're going in, is there anything you do like nootropics or anything like that? Because they're so used to it, caffeine would be the only thing. Now, yeah. like to train on caffeine, don't like to fight on caffeine. Mm. But that'd be about it. And again, it's like years ago when I would have really just come out of the public system, it would have been like, all oh, like Alpha GPC, there would have been all, and I, and I just, I think it was because the lads had no money and I just moved right. away from it and I've never yeah. got back into it. So, so I actually wouldn't even know like Alpha GPC would be the only thing I remember from that, from that stuff for it. But I, I'm sure there's loads of options, but uh, I, I don't use any. Very cool, man. That's awesome. Uh, anything we missed that we should that we should um, bring back as far as the the weight cut or the weight or the the load? No, like th- th- that's kind of without drilling into the exact specifics. They had a very broad strokes of what I do. Like I kind of divide it up into four phases. So your first phase is the diet, and then within that, I have kind of three subcategories, which is like you know a lot of times when fighters come to me originally, they haven't got a clue about eating. So it's just about making better choices. So I'd be like, and that's literally all it is. And then the second phase would be working out calories, working out macros. And then once they've mastered that, the next category would be like carb cycling to get adaption. Uh, A lot of it is based off uh, stuff from Team Sky for the cycling. They do a lot of that to uh, change VO2 max, like when you switch from car from fat to carbs as an energy source. So uh, there's a paper by Impy that goes into a lot more detail. And there's a guy, James Morton, has produ- produced a lot of research on that as well. He worked for Team Sky and that we and that would be of the third subcategory of the first phase. And then the second phase is the wake up. Third phase is the refuel. And then the fourth phase is between, you know, one fight camp and the next fight camp. Mm. And this is where people completely mess up, where they get shredded and then they get fat. They get shredded, they get fat. So the wake-up procedure is way easier if, like, I, I let the guys go a little bit mad for a week, 10 days, and then it's like, right, let's lock it back in. Because what you want is it's easier to cut from if you're eating 3,000 calories, 3,500 calories, as an 80 kilo man for 10 weeks to then do a weight cut versus being down at like 1700, 1800 calories because you fuck the diet and you really have to get aggressive with it. Yeah. And, and then start a weight cut, you know. So the second person there, you know, through all research is going to have a higher chance, a higher incidence rate of injury just because like, and I think like there's certain things that I think are really underappreciated. Uh, for recovery and that's your total calories and your sleep so if you're eating enough calories and you're sleeping really well you can tick a lot of boxes when it comes to recovery you know people are always like oh what supplement do i need to take and i'm I'm tired what supplement do i need and what's your sleep like oh it's terrible i was like there's no point taking any supplements unless your sleep is right now we might take supplements to help your sleep but there's no point in like right let's take you know 250 milligrams of caffeine before every training session because you're exhausted it's like, well, let's start sleeping so that we don't need as much caffeine to do that. Yeah, man. True. Caffeine works so well when you're rested and it works so poorly when you're tired. 
<laughs> yeah. And I think you uh, and, and I think you really I think when you're tired like, now again this could just be anecdotal, but I think when you're tired with caffeine, the hit is stronger, but it wears off quicker. Crashes faster, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. John man, that was a fantastic uh, deep dive into first programming and and now uh weight cuts man i'm so grateful for your time i would love to have you share if you want um where people can learn more from you and the irish strength institute yeah so we've in the process of writing a book on this nice yeah i didn't realize how hard it would be <laughs> it's taken longer than expected yeah um, yeah so we go into everything we talked about there with the weight cutting side of things so it's going to be the scientific weight cutting uh, and yeah, so I literally, I'm terrible on social media. I literally only started an Instagram account yesterday. So, <laughs> so that'll be, uh, that's, uh, John Connor PhD. Uh, so John Connor, like the Terminator spelled exactly the same way, John Connor PhD. And, uh, that link to the same name of the website where I have like the, a landing page will go up soon enough for when the book comes out, but I'll be, um, I'm putting all those different things into into the book and uh, on a how to and it, and the problem is a lot of times when people are talking about weight cutting it's that it's it, it, you know there's a lot of good resources out there but it doesn't put it all together exactly yeah in, in, into one um, yep. and I think uh, and I'll have to see about this when I release it but a lot of people don't talk about how actually aggressive it is like so people say don't don't cut more than five percent body mass I'm like well that's not the reality of what's happening. Right. You know, like if, if, if you, if you're a fighter, you're at a disadvantage, unless your skill level is unbelievable, but you're at a disadvantage if you're cutting four or 5% body mass. Like the top guys, it's, it's in the UFC, it's eight to 12%. That's, and that's, that's the reality. Now, is it a case of weight classes that are decided by the guys who are best at cutting weight or the best fighters? Who knows? But this is the reality of what's going on now. So, right. But as I said, I put all that information into the book anyway. John, thank you very much, man. I appreciate your time. No problem, Ben. And that's a wrap, ladies and gents. I hope you enjoyed this podcast with John Connor. Uh, as I said, incredible wealth of information. I know you got at least one to five tips from this podcast that you can apply to improving your life right now. One of the most important things you can do, guys, is, is don't wait, right? Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for next week. Take something you learned today and apply it. I think one of the biggest maybe misnomers or mistakes in our modern society is this belief that we have to constantly be consuming. Ultimately, it's just another form of mental masturbation, isn't it? It's like, I'm going to go learn something. But unless you apply it, you didn't really learn it, did you? So take at least one to three things you learned from today's podcast and go apply it. Maybe it's this application of like, hey, how do I get a, structure, a structural balanced workout? How do I ensure that I can do all these things in a balanced way? Right? Or maybe it's, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hire a coach and I'm going to work with someone who's going to help me optimize my body from the inside and out. Or maybe it's, I'm going to really push myself to do what I love, like champions do. We often talk about champions. And if you're someone who identifies as a winner, as a champion, or want to identify as a champion winner, absolutely take action on what you hear in this podcast. And absolutely take advantage of our amazing deal coming through at Heroic, heroic.us, where you're going to get free philosopher's notes for our listeners exclusively plus a two-week trial period head over to heroic.us slash mi um, ladies and gents thanks for being here as always if you did enjoy this podcast i would appreciate if you share with at least one person 
that you know and love who would benefit from this content. And don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review. I'd love to hear your feedback on how I can do a better job, how we can do a better job bringing on the guests that you want, and ultimately just hear if we're curating the right information for you. I know sometimes there's a lot of information out there and it's really hard to really garner what's valuable for you right now. This is one of the things I do in my coaching community. As I always say, people who are the best in the world simply know what to prioritize and they prioritize it. And if either of those is a challenge for you, meaning I don't, I'm not really sure what I should prioritize, or geez, I don't, I don't do it. I don't follow through. I need some accountability. It's really what we do in our coaching community. And we've got our coaching community continues to grow week after week, month after month. We were actually full for a while because we had such a high demand. But we've managed to uh, bring on and train some new exceptional coaches um, that are ultimately now ready to take on a few new highly motivated clients. And the way you'll know if this is for you is we only work with people that are ready to change now. It's so important to acknowledge this is if, if transforming for you right now would be a kind of nice to have, it's not going to be a great fit. If it's an absolute must and you're ready to transform now, these are the type of people we work with because we're committed to your success. And I often say, if we're committed to your success more than you're committed to your success, we're going to fail. At Muscle Intelligence, we aim for a 100% success rate. Do we always get it? No. But what we're trying to do is make sure that we're having the right people coming into the community who are ultimately ready to transform their body now and take action. And it's just our job then to be the, the, the guides, right? We're going to guide you through the process. You are always the hero of your own story. And the hero needs support. The hero needs guidance. The hero needs process and a plan ultimately just simply to take action. So we're here to support you. If you guys are interested, you can head over to muscleintelligence.com slash apply, A-P-P-L-Y, to fill out an application to get on a call with me and my team to discuss how you can join us and ultimately make 2023 the best year of your life. One thing I've been doing lately, I'll say this quickly, is I've been doing a 30-day optimization plan for myself because I realized that sometimes we start to let little things slide. We start to let you know, this, you know, I eat a little bit of this and I go a little bit later and, and maybe I don't drink the water and maybe I'm not taking the supplements. And then all of a sudden you, you end up in a place you don't want to be. And it's just the idea of a frog in the, in the warm water, right? The water slowly starts to, room, to, to warm until it's obviously eventually boiling and, and the frog boils to his death. Whereas we don't want to do that. So one thing I'm building into this coaching is 30-day optimization programs. So ultimately by the end of 30 days, you would be amazed, truly amazed how much you could change your life how much weight you can lose, how much muscle you might be able to build, how many habits you can create. If you simply commit to a short amount of time to execute. So our first 30 days of our coaching is really about this optimization. And we're going to get you fit enough to transform. Make sure your body is ready to adapt and recover and, and progress. So if that sounds interesting to you, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash apply. Hop on a call with myself or my lead man, Matia, who's an absolute legend of a human being. And we'll decide if we can help you. And if we can, we'd love to work with you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your time. Have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.